Thanks, buddy. Good morning, New Life East. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for that introduction, Pastor Rory. Pastor Andrew texted me earlier this morning and wanted me to extend a warm hello to you. He's having a great rest, but he loves you and he misses you. But I'm excited to be here with you. A few people asked me as I came in, it's like, well, if you're here, who's preaching at New Life downtown? Uh, My wife is actually preaching uh, down there this morning, and she'll be out here in just a few weeks. And uh, then you'll realize who the best better preacher is uh, once she comes. Downtown's realizing it today, so I'm going to be looking for a job uh, in a few weeks. Uh, But as Rory said, we're in this series this summer, both here at New Life East and at New Life Downtown, through the Psalms of Ascent. If you're wondering, like, what are those? It's Psalm 120 through 134. It's this collection of 15 psalms toward the end of the book of songs that are held together, uh, the collection is held together by this superscription, by this heading, the italicized sort of part in your Bible. In the original language, it says the songs of the going up or the songs of the ascent, or in some translations, the songs of the pilgrimage. Because most scholars believe that these 15 songs would have been sung by Israel as they made their three annual pilgrimage trips from wherever they were in the land or the world up to Jerusalem. So they would have traveled there three times a year for Passover, for Pentecost, and for the Feast of Tabernacles. And as they made their journey, as they made their way from wherever they found themselves in life back into the presence of God, they would sing these 15 songs along the way. It's sort of the original road trip playlist uh, for the people of God, that they had these 15 songs that they would go to and sing. But the collection has become, kind of over the course of time, also a metaphor for our life with God. That there is a view of these psalms that says all of us are spending our life somewhere. There's somewhere that we find ourselves, and we know that where we desperately need to get is to the presence of God. And so the collection becomes not only these songs that Israel sang on their way up to Jerusalem, but songs that the people of God sing and pray as a way to talk about our own pilgrimage of faith, of knowing we're all starting somewhere. Each of us in our own life with God has an origin point, an origin story, a moment that we became aware of God's love for us. Really, the story began a long time before that, but there was a moment that we realized oh wait, what I desperately need is the God who made me, the God who loves me, the God who redeems me. I need him. And then we begin a life long of pursuing him, of learning what it means to walk in the way of Jesus and to enter the presence of God. This idea of this, psalm, this collection of psalms being a metaphor for our life with God was popularized by someone you've heard about several times here, a man by the name of Eugene Peterson. So he wrote a book about 40 years ago called uh, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Discipleship in an Instant Society. And he took these 15 psalms and he saw in them different parts of our own discipleship, of our own journey with Jesus. Today we're going to be in Psalm 123, so I'm going to read it to you today and then we'll pray and we'll dive in. Psalm 123 verse 1, I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. 
as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to you, the Lord our God, till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord. Lord, have mercy, for we have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogance of contempt from the proud. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we enter into this text today, we so long to hear your voice. We thank you that you are the God who spoke all things into existence and who continues to speak to us today through your word and by the Spirit. So would you speak to us? Give us ears to hear what it is that you want to say. Open our minds to understand. And more importantly, would you fill our hearts with the love of God and transform us into the image and likeness of Jesus. In your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. This psalm begins, I lift up my eyes to you who sit enthroned in the heaven. One of the interesting things that happens though in these psalms is that when we look at them in the original language, we realize that there are several things that are different. And the most startling one is that the words in Hebrew don't actually begin this way. They don't begin with, I will lift my eyes. The word order in the original language is to you, to you, to you I lift my eyes. We see the same thing in Psalm 120 and in in Psalm 121 earlier in the collection. In Psalm 120, I call to the Lord in my distress, but in the original language, to Yahweh, to the Lord I call. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the mountains, but the original language, to the mountains, I lift my eyes. I lift my eyes to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the mountains. That's where I am looking. The emphasis of the word order is actually on God and not on us. To you, to the Lord, to the mountains, to you, not me. The most important thing in the Psalms is not what we're doing, not what we're saying, not what we're resolving to do. The most important thing for the Psalm is who God is and where he's located. To you. The emphasis gets placed in the right spot. And these opening words emphasize our direction and our destination. It emphasizes the direction and the destination for the psalmist, for those pilgrims that sang these songs on the way to Jerusalem, and for us who sing these songs now. They remind us where we are going and, more importantly, who we are going to They were going to God. We are going to God. The whole pilgrimage that they took in their lives and the pilgrimage that we take in our lives is a pilgrimage of going to God. So much of our lives are spent trying to get somewhere. We think about our lives so many times we're thinking about, talking about, praying, planning to get somewhere and usually to get somewhere other than the place that we are. 
my whole life, I kept thinking, you know, things will really improve as soon as I get out of Iowa, which is true. They just generally do when you get out of that place. But I think, oh, if I can just get out of Iowa, and then, oh, if I can just get out of college, or if I can just get out of seminary, if I can just get married, if I just have kids, if I can just get to this place, and each time we're going, oh, things will suddenly click into place, and all of life will make sense once I get out of this place to the other one. But the scriptures teach us that for us, our, our, for our lives to flourish, we need to go in one direction to one destination. And that is a going to God. Not a going out of Iowa and out of school and out of this and out of that and going to this other place. That those things may be part of the journey that God takes us on. The real core of our life is meant to be a going to God going to him and learning to go to him in every situation and circumstance that we find ourselves in and not waiting to go to him until we get out of the place that we don't want to be, but a learning to go to him wherever we are and whatever condition we find our souls in. God is the goal of our, pil- our, of our pilgrimage. He is the recipient of our prayers. He is the focus of our attention. He is the object of our affection. This is what the Psalms teach us. And so the psalmist and the pilgrim, they lift their eyes to the one who's seated in heaven. They're looking above and beyond at this point. Jerusalem, earlier it was, I lift my eyes to the mountains, or I lift my eyes to the gates, or I lift my eyes to the city. Now they're looking up above and beyond Jerusalem and the mountains to God who sits in the heavens, enthroned over all. They're looking to the God who rules and who reigns. The invitation of the psalm is to lift our eyes up to the king and to his inbreaking kingdom. But the implication is, is that the eyes of the author, the eyes of the traveler, and the eyes of those of us who sing this song now are often somewhere else. That we have to lift our eyes to the king and to his kingdom because our eyes are down on something else. Pastor Jade preached about this a few weeks ago out here, talked about the way the Psalms teach us to use our eyes, and here we are back in that same thing once again. But for this writer, what we realize from this psalmist is that his eyes are on others. His eyes are particularly on others' opinion of him and others' treatment of him and others' treatments of his community, of those that he considers himself one with. And speaking on their behalf, he says in verse 3, For we have endured no end of contempt. Some translations will say no end of shame. We have endured no end of ridicule or mockery from the arrogance and contempt from the proud. The psalmist is experiencing and journeying out of toward the hills, toward the mountains, toward the presence of God is when he thinks about his ordinary everyday life, the place that he is coming from, it's marked by contempt, by a feeling of being despised or mocked or ashamed by those he calls carefree or comfortable or proud, by those in his own community, in his own circle. What's interesting here about the psalmist is that he doesn't name names. It's one of the reasons why I love the psalms. They don't specifically start listing you know, Bob and Jerry and Fred and Mona and Myrtle and Gretel. Instead, it leaves it open. 
so that we can go, oh yeah, I know who that is. That we can think about the bullies that we've experienced in our lives. The bosses that maybe we have right now in the places that we work, the managers or supervisors who are making the work environment that we're in pretty difficult to navigate. We can think about the bad roommate that we've had or that we've had who made life awfully miserable for us. For some, we immediately think maybe about friends who've betrayed us or, who, or family who treated us in ways that they shouldn't have treated us that way. For me, when I look at this psalm, I immediately begin to think back on some of those situations. Oftentimes, the very source of a lot of the shame that I deal with, the anxiety that I deal with, the mockery that I've experienced in my life, I can point it back to the things that my father spoke over me. You're like, oh yeah, I know what that experience is. For some of you, you know that same thing. It was a spouse who betrayed you a friend who stabbed you in the back, a parent who abused you, or someone who abandoned you, and you could find yourself in this psalm feeling despised, feeling like treated with contempt, feeling an own source of shame that came from somewhere outside. And then there's other times that we know too that there's internal stuff that contribute to that. And it's not so much in external factors, but our own foolishness our own decisions that we look back on and because of what we've said, because of what we've done, we now treat ourselves with mockery, with contempt. We've experienced shame because of our own foolishness in life, the things that we regret and look back on and wonder, why did I ever do that? I wish I hadn't. I should have done this. I should have done that. And the truth is, it's hard to see above and beyond the pain and the shame that we experience in life. It's really hard to see above it. To see above and beyond all that we carry. To come into a place like this and to begin to sing songs knowing all of these things that are true about us. Or the things that aren't true about us that we believe to be true. We carry them and we hold them. And what happens is like the psalmist, our eyes are downcast. This is all that we can see. It's all that we can see is the things that have been spoken over us, the things that have been said to us, the way others have treated us, or our own decisions that have got us in the mess that we're in. And we believe that we're stuck. This is it. This is who I am. This is what I deserve. This is what life is like. This is my lot. And there's nothing that I can do about it. There's no way that this is ever going to change. And the psalmist suggests that there is a way out. That there is a way forward. That there is something other than that reality. But it begins with a look of faith. It begins with lifting our eyes above all of those things to God himself. That our pilgrimage of faith begins usually not with a leap of faith, but a look of faith, a looking up above and gazing on the face of God. Sometimes for us, it's, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to stop for just a moment and to lift our eyes above all of that and to see if there might be something else that's true? For some of us, that feels like a great risk, to risk the possibility of faith To risk the possibility that there is a God who says something different, who believes something different, who offers something different to us than what life has offered. 
we don't want to take that risk wondering if we're going to be disappointed or ashamed in some other way. But I think for most of us, what we realize is that ability to look above it all is an act of grace. It's the receiving of a grace from God. What we discover about God along the way is that this is a God who gently comes into our lives and begins to lift our chin. It's not so much a mustering up of our own strength to say, okay, I'm just going to look above it all, but somehow, in some way, through the mysterious working and wondering of God, through the people that he surrounds us with, through all kinds of events and circumstances, Jesus comes gently into our lives and begins to lift our chin, and all of a sudden, we can see the God who's been looking at us the entire time. We're lifting our eyes to the God whose gaze is always upon us. And most of the time, we can't do it ourselves. But God comes gently into our lives and begins to lift our chin that we might see above and beyond what is going on. He can shift our focus from ourselves and our circumstances to the transcendent king that he is, the one who lives and reigns above it all. But looking up at God implies a particular relationship between us and God. It places us in a position of need, a position of dependence, of humility. It makes and marks us as the one who's inferior in the relationship. The psalmist picks up on this and says, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our, our, uh, so our eyes, in the very same way, look to the Lord our God until he shows us mercy. The psalmist calls us and teaches us to relate to God as servants to a master, which is very troubling imagery for us. We're personally quite uncomfortable with that. We're all like the 19th century English poet. We long to be the master of our own fate and the captains of our own souls. We don't like the idea of being servants. We have a cultural aversion to it. Unless we're talking about servant leadership, then suddenly we like the term. Because we remain in a position of power in that, right? Well, I'm a leader who's also a servant. And the psalmist just says, we're servants, just leaves it there. So we have this personal, ah, I'm not sure what to do with that. And then we have the larger cultural and historical one. When we think about this idea of servants or slaves and masters, we have this difficult understanding of that. Like, wait a minute. We know that this is wrong, so why would God use this to describe our relationship with him? In the ancient Near East and in the Greco-Roman world, slavery was legal and it was widespread. It was a pre-existing, culturally accepted practice that pervaded the world of the Bible that God was breaking into. Generally, slavery in those contexts was related to economic crisis. Some would end up in so much debt that they would have to become a servant of someone else until they paid off that debt. Or it was because of war. Someone was captured in war. It was rarely ethnically or racially motivated like we normally think about it. The exception of that is probably Israel and Egypt. That we find this hatred toward Semites to those from the, what we consider the area of Palestine and Israel by Egypt at that time. But the Old Testament 
is accepting of this practice is sort of like recognizing that this is what's going on in the world that God is breaking into. So the Old Testament permits this kind of servanthood on a limited basis with a required emancipation after seven years with full resources as if the person was getting paid for that entire seven years, sending them out and hoping that this will never happen to them again. The prophets imagined a future without it. Said the world that God wants has nothing to do with slavery. Jesus came in and said, I've come to set the captives free. The New Testament is consistently undermining the system. Rowan Williams, the brilliant Anglican priest, said Judaism and Christianity lit a long fuse that eventually exploded in culture and ended the practice. Not entirely, but we have now organizations and people working to end slavery worldwide. But for generations before, the Bible was horribly misused and abused to justify the practice. We have to recognize that. So it sits uncomfortable with us. But part of that long wick that Rowan was talking about was Israel's own self-understanding. That they understood that they had been slaves in Egypt. And that God had rescued them. God had delivered them. They're told over and over again, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. But they also knew that when they were rescued, they were called into a covenant community with God. And servanthood was one of the ways that the new relationship with God was depicted. It was depicted also in terms of being sons and daughters, also depicted in terms of being friends, also depicted in several other ways, but one of the images that we're given is the image of servanthood. It's the way that God depicts his relationship with us. Why? Maybe it's like Bob Dylan said, because we all got to serve somebody. <laughs> the question is, who are we serving and what does that relationship look like? And what we discover in the scriptures is that when God is using this image, he's actually subverting it in every way. I'm saying it's not like the way that you think it is. Because in those situations, you were talking about cruel taskmasters. What you're talking about here is being invited into the royal family of the king. The king who loves you and gives himself for you and created you and sacrifices himself for you and brings you into a relationship that is for your own good and your own flourishing. And a submission to that of recognizing him as king and us as not. And serving along his ways, knowing those are not for his own selfish gain, but for our own good and our own flourishing. So servants, they use this image and say, this is who God is. He's the one who has our best interests in mind. And in the same way that servants learn to attend, to focus, to study, to know, to fix their eyes on their master. So the psalmist teaches us to do the same thing. If our pilgrimage begins with lifting our eyes to God, then our pilgrimage of faith is furthered by fixing our eyes on him, maintaining that gaze. As he gently lifts our chin, we then look full and Jesus his wonderful face and learn what it means for him to be our master, for him to be our Lord, for him to be our king, and how to follow him in the way that leads to life. But we live in a distracted, overcommitted, and extremely fast-paced society. We find it difficult to be truly and fully present to anything. We find it difficult to be truly and fully present to ourselves 
to our loved ones, to our family, to our friends, to our work, to our neighbors, much less to an invisible and elusive God. How do we maintain a fixed posture, a fixed presence with him? It's not natural, nor is it easy. It takes a lifetime to learn. In his famous book, Brother Lawrence described this way of life as the practice of the presence of God, something we learn to practice. We learn to fix our eyes on him. In the emotionally healthy materials that we teach at New Life Downtown, one of the basic principles is slowing down for loving union with Jesus. In what way is Jesus inviting you in this season of summer to slow down to be with him? What is the invitation that he's extending to you to fix your eyes on him? Are you heeding that invitation, receiving it in the gentle way that it's offered as something that's not given to you as a way to guilt you into particular action, but from the God who loves you and longs to spend time with you? Has he been inviting you to start practicing Sabbath? Has he been inviting you to take moments of your day for silence and solitude? Has he been longing for you to go on long walks in the woods just to be with him? Is he inviting you to take these psalms and to make them your own prayers and to sit with him in his presence? It's his way of teaching us to fix our eyes on him, to be present to him, that he might give all of himself to all of us. How is he inviting you to him? Because the most startling thing about this psalm is neither the beginning or the end. The most startling thing is the middle. The most startling thing is what we should expect when we spend time in the presence of God. The most startling thing is what God offers the psalmist, what God offers to us. He says, so our eyes look to the Lord, our God, until he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy. The psalmist and the pilgrim and all of us are taught to cry out for mercy and to expect to receive it. That the invitation into Jesus' presence comes with an expectation that what we'll find there is the mercy of God. When I was a kid, mercy was a bad word. Mercy meant defeat. Mercy was a word that we used when I cried out in pain to get my older two brothers to stop doing whatever it is that they were doing at time. Mercy was what the umpire called out when we were down by more than 10 runs after so many innings. Mercy is what the Rockies wanted last night as the Angels went up 23 to 0 in the first four innings. I lived in a Cobra Kai world where there was no mercy. I was Danny LaRusso, everyone else was Johnny, and there, if I cried out in mercy, there was no Mr. Miyagi around to rescue me. Mercy was something of a bad word. Maybe I would have felt different if I was the older brother if our teams won, but instead I was on below average teams, and so mercy was always a sign of weakness, a sign of failure. It was a source of shame. 
But when the psalmist and when the scriptures talk about mercy, it's not a way of crying out and asking God to stop his relentless attack against us. It's not a way of crying out and asking God to stop the pain that he's caused. Instead, it's asking God to rescue us from the evils of this world and from our own foolishness as we live in it. It's asking with the expectation that God actually wants to give this to us. That this is who he is. This is what he does. And this is what we should expect. See, our pilgrimage at the end of the day is a journey into mercy. We lift our eyes and fix our eyes and walk toward God, learning every step along the way that we're walking into is greater depths and understanding of mercy. Eugene Peterson put it this way, mercy, God, mercy. This prayer is not an attempt to get God to do what he is unwilling otherwise to do, but a reaching out to what we know that he does do. And as an expressed longing to receive what God is doing in and for us in Jesus Christ. For many, it's difficult for us to believe this because when we have cried out or reached out in our lives, we've cried out to those that we thought would help us, those that we thought would love us, those that we thought would come alongside of us. Mercy is not what we received, at least not the mercy depicted in the scripture. Because the mercy that God delivers is a mercy that delivers us, that rescues us, that strengthens us, that heals us, that restores us, that revives us, that lifts our chin, fixes our gaze, and helps us out of whatever mess that we're in. It's a mercy that comes alongside and lifts up and revives and resurrects and restores, takes everything that's broken and shattered and messed up in our lives and in our world and begins to put it back together in a beautiful array that we could never have imagined when we found ourselves at the depths. God is a merciful God, and he desires to give us mercy. The truth of the scriptures is that the mercy of God is always available to us, and that's depicted for us every week as we come to the table. As we come to the table of Jesus, what we're asking every week in some way, even if we don't have the words to ask it, is we're asking Jesus to give us the grace to lift our eyes above ourselves and our circumstances. We're asking Jesus to help us to look above and beyond the shame and the pain of our lives, to be able to see his face. We're asking Jesus to help us fix our eyes on him. We're crying out to him in hopes and expectation that we're going to encounter mercy as we walk to the table. What we're doing is we're walking, we're journeying into the mercy that God freely gives us that we might then be sent out into the world to, be give, to give mercy to others. But we cannot do that until we have received the mercy that he freely gives. And so here we remember, and here we receive the very mercy of God. We remember on the night that he handed himself over to us, our Lord, he took bread, and when he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which has been mercifully given to you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup of wine, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. He said, drink of this, all of you. This is my blood, not your blood, my blood, which has been shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin, and it's been mercifully shed for you. So whenever you drink it, do so in remembrance of me, in remembrance I am gracious and compassionate. 
slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Remember who I am and receive all of me because I am giving all of myself to all of you all of the time. So as we come to the table, let's again journey into mercy and to receive everything that he has for us. I want to invite the communion servers to come forward. We're going to form two lines down the center, moving from the front to the back. You can come to the center, come forward. And one of the servers will give you a gluten-free cracker, which reminds us, symbolizes images, depicts for us the body of Christ that's been broken. And then you can take that cracker and dip it in the cup, which reminds us of his blood. You can receive those elements right there or take the elements back to your seat and receive them prayerfully with those that you've come with. But these are the gifts of God given for us, the people of God. Let's journey into mercy together this morning.